We here at TalkHouse recognize that in 2020, even more than usual, life has sometimes felt like a bit too damn much. So we partnered with the very rad nonprofit Sound Mind to bring our listeners a free mental health toolkit. Over at TalkHouse.com SoundMind, you'll find valuable resources that cover everything from coping with coronavirus anxiety and grief, to depression and bipolar support, to suicide prevention help. There's links to support groups and to sliding scale therapy. You can check out community-specific resources for BIPOC, Latinx, and LGBT-identifying folks, as well as frontline workers, parents, and musicians. These are tough, tough times, and we're all feeling it. We want to make sure our listeners and readers are able to get the help they may need, starting at TalkHouse.com SoundMind. Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. A tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? It's your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. On this week's episode, Bob Mole chops it up with bullies Alicia Bagnano. These are two generations of absolute rockers, each of whom have incredible new records out. Joining to help intro this week's show, from the city of wind, we have the man, the myth, the legend. Well, I don't know if I can live up to that. It's Josh Modell. What's up, Elia? Executive editor on the line. How you feeling, man? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. And I'm so excited to finally share this conversation. This was recorded Earlier this summer, Bully's record came out last month. And now, if our early bird listeners are tuning in the day we drop this, the new Bob Mould record is released tomorrow. Tomorrow. Josh, I've been a fan of Bully's since their first record, which came out back in 2015. Originally from Minnesota, now Nashville-based, the multi-instrumentalist and singer Alicia Bagnano writes and records wonderful fuzzed-out rock under the name Bully. Their newest record, which is their third, Sugar Egg, was just released on Sub Pop. Aside from being a sick singer slash screamer slash songwriter, Alicia's also a noted recording and mixing engineer who used to work at Steve Albini's Electrical Audio in Chicago. Yeah, and coincidentally, Bob Mould cut his latest LP there. Our producer, Mark Yoshizumi, has done some work there. It is an incredible studio. Josh, you've hung out a little bit, I think. I used to play poker there. <laughs> when Albini hosts, you played electrical audio. I love it. And now, listeners, from one of my favorite albums of 2020, Sugar Egg by Bully, let's check out the track, Where to Start. I fucking love them, Josh. I fucking love them. So great. Speaking of where to start, Josh, where do we start with Bob Mould? You know, it's a cliche, but he's one of those guys that really, at this point, should need no introduction. The guy has been making incredibly catchy, powerful music for more than 40 years, starting, of course, with Husker Du back in the 80s, an amazing run in the 90s with a band called Sugar, and then making solo records really since then as well. His latest, Blue Hearts, is out on Merge September 25th, and it is, as with every other record he's made, incredible. And also next month, an incredible box set's coming out, Distortion, 1989 to 2019, a 24-CD box set. 24, Josh. So if you need to catch up and you've got an entire day, <laughs> pick it up. 
Well, for most of the last decade, Bob Mould's group has consisted of Bob singing and playing guitar, Jason Narducci on bass and backing vocals, and drummer John Worcester. Both of those guys have actually been on the TalkHouse podcast before. And if people don't know, they're also known as half of Superchunk. Can't argue with that. It's a hell of a pedigree. Josh, let's take a listen to some of Bob's newest music. What, what track do you want to pick, man? From his very political new album, Blue Hearts, why don't we check out American Crisis? He is still fucking slaying, Josh. Uh, he certainly has plenty of energy after 40 years. He has not run out. And if you've seen him live recently, dude has not slowed down. You know, Josh, one thing that really meant a lot to me was that Bob was really the first indie rock queer icon that I was aware of. And one thing that I love about this conversation is that both he and Alicia really get into living your authentic life in front of the world. I think the really interesting part about this conversation is they kind of talk about the ups and downs of that. Yeah. You know, like how freeing it can be, but also you put yourself in the glare of the spotlight when you talk about your own life. Yeah. Alicia recently came out as queer and shared in the press release for Sugar Egg that she has been receiving treatment for bipolar too. And in this conversation, she talks about how that played into the new record. Yeah, it's a great conversation. We get to hear about the making of both of their new records. And we get to hear from a veteran how the music industry has changed since Bob's earliest days in the game. Before the talk, Alicia read Bob's autobiography, See a Little Light, and she has a bunch of amazing questions based on that as well. Yeah, she's taken some inspiration there, man. For sure, as so many people have. His stories about being on the road in the 80s and how basically unplanned every tour was are, yeah. are incredible. <laughs> This conversation is truly full of gems from both of them. And, and as I was on Zoom recording it with them, I just could not stop thinking, I cannot wait to share this with our listeners. Should we do it? Yeah, man, let's hear it. Hey, congrats on the new record right off the bat. Thank you. <laughs> you too. I have listened to everything to you about 12 times so far today. It's oh dear. fucking amazing. It's <laughs> oh one of my favorite songs now. <laughs> I love the ocean too. When is your record planning on being released? I know the single's out. Yeah, the first single came out and Blue Hearts, the album, comes out on September 25. Okay. And your your new album is, is soon, soon, right? Yeah, August 21st, and we're actually releasing the second single this week. Oh, fun. So, fun, fun. Yeah, it's flying by. Which song are you going with for the second track? Every Tradition. Nice. For singles, I really, if I were to go with what I wanted, it would be pretty bad for me. I'm really bad at picking singles, so I kind of let them take it away. <laughs> uh, the label and stuff. I don't really care as long as I record the record I want. I'm like, pick what you want for the single. <laughs> yeah, that's that weird black science of what will sound good on the radio right this moment, you know, in terms of what people are doing with music and and stuff. Do you ever get the thing where, why are the cymbals so loud? This makes it really hard to play on the oh, radio. God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The last record was like 
I mixed the past two ones. I didn't mix this one that it's about to come out. And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made because throughout <laughs> the whole process, I was like getting critiqued on the mix as well as the music itself. And it was just like, oh, this is great. Just an extra little token to take along with me. Oh my gosh. How do you find that part of the process? Because you do you do your own recordings and you're mixing and, and when you're deep in the in the woods with it and people start saying stuff. I mean, how do you cope with that? I just turn it off. I take it so, mixing stuff I take so personally. And I think a lot of it too, before this record, I was just doing it because I felt like I had something to prove. I felt like as a woman in the engineering field, it was like my duty to do it if I could. And then this past record, I was like, fuck it. Like, I know that I can engineer. I'm fine with my capabilities and I'm sick of sacrificing the music part um, because I felt like I had to prove something. And it was a lot more enjoyable, but I'm glad I did the past two records, but it was so much. I mean, taking on the criticism of the music or just all the commentary of it is one thing when you're releasing something so personal and then also having the mix on top of it as something people feel like they want to comment on was just like, oh God, it's just so much. (laughs) Yeah. So much. Yeah, I finally got to the place with this most recent album to just sit in the back of the room and not even watch what's happening. And just letting my letting my engineer yeah. Bo Sorensen just go and go and go, and it was funny. Like I just I would be listening so much with my eyes closed. If I heard him walk across the sound field, I'd be like jump up, like whoa, oh oh, you just moved, <laughs> you just walked in front of the speakers. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I do that all the time. Listen with my eyes closed. That's like the only way I can critically listen to my own music. Yeah, and it's... Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy just being able to sit back? Yes, I did. I was just listening. And, you know, with modern technology, like, I mean, do you use 2-inch or do you use computer or combination? I used 2-inch up until this record, and this record was mainly recorded by John Congleton, and he went through a tape machine, but everything went into Pro Tools. Yeah. But before, I was doing it all on tape, and it was, I mean, you know... What mm-hmm. that's like, and not having to deal with that was great too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's something. The one thing that I have trouble still, you know, decades later with computer recording is that weird connections disconnection that happens when you're trying to do something with EQ and you're watching the screen while you're doing it, mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah. you know, as opposed to a, a an old console where you're just you're either you know if it's a neve you're sort of notching through things or you know if it's a trident or whatever you're sweeping through and and you're just it's all about your ears and not about the where the knob is landing and just those kinds of little tiny disconnect connections are are still decades later are tough for me i always try and check myself because i will find myself listening with my eyes sometimes in the computer and i'm like just Close your eyes and figure out what's going on instead of watching everything happen. It can get uh, kind of messy. I saw that you did. You recorded at Pachyderm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was great. Where did you record Blue Hearts? Uh we tracked in Electrical A. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
Great. That's awesome. Which for those of you who have not been in the room, that's Electrical Audio in Chicago, Illinois. It's Steve Albini's home base. He has two studios. Studio B is a taller uh, concrete box and Studio A is is very horizontal and amazing brick and wood and uh it's it's just it's 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 a it's a pretty magic place to work for me. I I rarely leave the building when I'm working on records. We we go out for maybe one meal for twenty minutes. <laughs> yep, yep. I yeah. did the past two records there, and it not well not this one, but the first two. And it's like in the winter, you just don't leave for two or three weeks, however long you're there. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we were there in February of this year, so it was super cold. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's brutal. Yeah. That's brutal. Did you, you, so you slept in the studio and everything in the rooms? Yep. I get the big room closest to the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) That's the good one. Well, if it's not too noisy, depending on who's in B. Yeah, if it's not too noisy, exactly. Okay, so can I ask you a little bit about the book? Sure. Okay. Well, this first question isn't really as much about the book, but I think about this all the time when we're on the road. And I kind of want to know what the biggest thing is for you, the biggest change in the advancement of technology that's happened from when you first started touring to now, because it's a common topic in the van, talking about what touring would have been like without your iPhones or pretty much just like using payphones, using maps, not being able to communicate with the venues before you get there, all that stuff. And I wonder what is kind of the biggest thing that you took with you that you just kind of can't believe is easier now than things were back then because of the technology change. Yeah, it's all it's all the digital technology. It's you know the idea that an iPhone will do everything for you in your entire life. It's a map, it's a phone, and it's email. You know, back when Husker Du started out in the early '80s with touring, just to try to set the stage for people, it would be. Oh my God, I'm trying to think. Our first tour was the summer of 81, and we had offers to come up and play in Western Canada. So we just, we sort of got in a van with a map, and we had some phone numbers of people, and then we got to the Canadian (laughs) border, and they were like, what are you doing? And we're like, well, we're musicians that were supposed to play at the Calgarian Hotel in Calgary. And they're like, oh, okay, have you been to Canada before? I was like, well, I grew up on the Canadian border, but I've never worked in Canada. They're like, oh, well, you're going to need social insurance. So so we all got registered for, you know, for Canadian social insurance, medical insurance. And we're like, oh, that's really nice. Uh, uh, (laughs) But uh, <laughs> did you need that? Was that uh, necessary? I, I stayed healthy until Seattle. Grant got sick in Vancouver. He got an ear infection two weeks into the tour in Vancouver. And then I got the same ear infection when we crossed the border and went to Seattle. But uh, <laughs> of course, we had absolutely no money whatsoever. But yeah, for that first tour, a lot of it was getting to a town and then people going, Oh, you know the DOA guys? Oh, okay, well, here's the number for the wipers in Portland. Give them a call when you're out there, and maybe you could play on Monday night, you know, at a club there. And and then you get a number for Jello Biafra, and then he's like, oh, come on down and stay. You can play. We're doing a show, you know, next week, and you can you can open. We can put another band on the bill. So, I mean, it 
literally would be a couple of phone numbers would get you a few more phone numbers that would get you a few more dates on this quote unquote tour when you just left the house and, you know, <laughs> with, with the idea of playing That's at a hotel, wild. playing at a hotel in Calgary for six nights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there was more of a sense of community because of that. Not that I feel like the music scene is lacking one now, but I can only imagine if you're just going off of numbers and word of mouth, you know, people really looking out for each other. I think it's a different kind of engagement or a different kind of community because everything was analog and everybody was real life and your actions spoke louder than your words, which, you know, is, is, a, mm-hmm. is, a, is a cool way to live. You know, when, when, yeah. when, when, when what you do is actually how people perceive you as opposed to what you, what you tweet. So none of that existed. Right. And, and, you know, the idea of community, I mean, when we would roll the van into Eugene, Oregon, and we didn't really know where to go or what to do. And this would be the same with most cities. It'd be like, okay, well, we got to find like the record store that's near the skate shop. And there'll probably be a vegetarian restaurant somewhere nearby, and I bet that's yeah. where. And I bet that's. And I bet that's where the scene is. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's kind of still similar, <laughs> a little bit. Do you feel like then with press and stuff, people kind of expected you to give as much of yourself as they do now? I feel like with social media, it's just like everyone wants every corner of everything and everything explained. And I struggle with that in interviews and stuff because I always, when I first started, felt like I would just give too much away, more than I was comfortable with, and then regret it after the fact. Now I'm a lot better about it. But were you able to keep a little bit uh, more of the mystery then, or was press kind of similar to as it is now? Uh, It was completely different. Um, You know, in the early days, press was pretty much fanzines. So once you had your vegetarian meal and you went to the skate shop and then you went to the record store and then it would be time for sound check. And typically you get to the show at 4 or 5 p.m. to the venue and that might be somebody's basement or it might be a nightclub or Mm -hmm. it might be a VFW hall or, you know, any, any spot. And typically there would be a couple folks waiting at the club and they would come up and say, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I've got this fanzine. Here's a copy. You know, would you talk to us about music? And be like, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, this looks really cool. This looks like, you know, looks like a really cool fanzine. Sure, we can talk. And that would be press. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. As time went on and the band, you know, as Husker Du got more popular and Everybody wanted to talk to us. Then it became a little more formalized. But I think specifically what you were talking about with giving too much of yourself, I, th- I think it's different now. I, I, you know, again, because of social media and a lot of it is, I think artists tend to want to broadcast constantly. And then it's just expected. Yeah, then it's expected. And um, yeah, I think the whole relationship between artist and audience has changed considerably. And some of it is really good. And parts of it, you know, when you said the word mystery, that's 
the part that I miss, even as a fan, I sometimes don't want to know every personal thought of the artist. Like I'm often, no. I'm often content no, no, no. with the music. <laughs> yeah. I feel like having to explain each song so literally could potentially diminish any sort of connection that the audience will have with it. And I personally have never like researched what exactly one of my favorite songs was trying to say. I just loved it for what it was. And to kind of feel like that is a responsibility that's assumed of me, I, I really struggle with that because I don't know. I, I think that it can potentially disconnect a lot of people. I, I just think the beauty of it is being able to interpret it, how it relates to you and build that connection for yourself. And that's what's so cool about music. And so taking some of that away just isn't very appealing to me. I agree 100%. All of it, you know, unless there's a, a really strong message that the writer is trying to convey specifically, and I guess I'm doing that with my new album now, and I sort of have to, now I take on that responsibility of explaining my politics. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking with songs, love songs or situational songs or autobiographical songs, I just want to listen to the words and music and immerse myself and the extra meanings. I, I don't know. I just want it to be what what I think it means. On that note, your book was released in 2011, right? Yes. After that was out, how did it make you feel or looking back now, having so much information and personal stuff kind of out in the world? How do you feel about it? Um. It was cathartic in a way just to be able to get all of that history on the record. I mean, you know, talking about my childhood and my parents and, you know, growing up in a difficult house and, you know, knowing I was gay but not knowing what gay was beyond, you know, just the, the mechanical acts of, of of being gay. Yeah. Um, it... it you know, it, I think it was nice to show people that journey, and I think it was nice to show people how that journey wrapped around my work, mm -hmm. because I kept so much of that part of me out of my work. I mean, I was such a Buzzcocks fan, and one of the things that I loved about Pete Shelley's work is those were love songs about any two people in any situation, you yeah. know, Pete tended to leave gender pronouns out of his music. And I, yeah. I figured that out really quick. And I used that as a way to tell my stories. So I think when the, you know, with the book, it was nice to show people how all those threads, those separate threads actually weave together. And that, that was the part that I was most proud of with the book. But in, in specific mm -hmm. terms about hanging hanging all kinds of details out there. It's, it was hard because, man, in clarifying things, sometimes we say words that we probably shouldn't have said. And, man, doing, yeah. doing a book like that, it's just, you know, I try to be as careful as possible to not hurt anybody with saying things. But, but, my, own yeah. stuff, but my own stuff hanging out, I mean, how do you address that? Because I saw some of the stuff about your new record and you're 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 sharing some stuff. Yeah, I well, I'm going to 
say something really quick first, but when I was reading your book, that spin piece really resonated with me because I remember the first time I wrote trying and I was kind of coming out as bisexual, which I've, I just kind of felt like everyone knew, but I wasn't really sure. And just that whole view on every time you get done with an interview, just knowing it's out of your hands. Like you just, you know, they're going to take whatever they want, um, to use as like their clickbait or magazine bait and twist mm-hmm. the story. So it's just such like a, it's hard to not be pessimistic kind of going through that. It's like every time you give something away, you just like hold your breath and you're like, God, I fucking hope this like comes out okay. But this record, I feel really good about it. I mean, I had been going back and forth with, well, I, I kept, Bipolar being a secret for a long time, maybe yeah. I mean, up until now, really, so, so four or five years. And the only people who really knew was whoever I was dating at the time and my mom and, and some of my siblings. And um, she had also has, her and my brother have also had to deal with like mental health things. So it was cool to be able to relate on that note. But I feel really good about it. Like I feel like I'm kind of at the point where I just, it's not like I find some lightness with it, but I just don't care as much about bringing it up. I think I've kind of gotten over some of the heaviness of it or, I mean, it hasn't came out a bunch. I've only done about three interviews since the press release was put out. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's funny, people trot around it. Like the interviewers, they don't want to say it. They kind of want me to like bring it up, which is I don't know. I kind of like that. That's kind of the whole point of me talking about it is to make sure it's okay to talk about it. And for me, it had just affected my music and the process of the third record so drastically that not bringing it up would just be so inauthentic. I just don't know how I could get around it because it completely shifted me as a person into a position that I wouldn't have been in prior to getting the proper treatment for it. So now I feel really good. It's like a weight off my shoulder. It's kind of like, oh, cool. I can just talk about it. Yay. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's a little bit different now than when the first record came out and I was kind of bringing things up that I wasn't comfortable talking about with my peers, bringing them up in songs instead. And it almost just felt like, like I was always holding my breath a little bit. I never knew what to say or how much I wanted to say or when I needed to have a discussion with someone I loved about that topic first, um, as opposed to talking about it in an interview. And this this time around just feels a little bit different for me. Well, that's that's great. I mean, that's a big a, a big thing to talk about with with people. And and like you said about when you give people these really personal dialogues and and then you walk away and you go oh what's the headline or what's the clickbait or yeah you know to wrap it back a little bit to what was it like back then you know that was always the worry when you talked with people is you know it's like oh no if i say this one sentence in jest they'll put this on my tombstone it's like (laughs) and it was only meant for sure it's only meant as like a jest or an aside or a little extra color for a story and you're like oh no yeah. Yeah. It's always, and I don't think like readers understand that, you know, whatever you say can be manipulated or taken out of context in any way. And so it's just even doing press is 
pretty stressful. I actually had an interview the other day where I just, at the end of it, um, they were just kind of prying into really, really specific details of lines that were obviously very literal. Nothing needed to be asked about them. And the interview was great. It was fantastic. I think they were just, you know, doing their job and trying to get some clarity on a few things. But at the end of it, I just said, I don't want that to be discussed in the interview. That's triggering. I don't want to see it. I don't want my family to see it. I don't want my friends to see it. And it's still like a very realistic possibility and something I'm dealing with. So I just, I would rather you not keep it in there. And I think maybe a big difference now, I mean, I still think there's a lot of press that would do it, but now that there's been a little bit more mental awareness and that everybody's just a little bit more cautious um, in general, you know, it's really cool that I could say that. And the interviewer was like, no problem. I will not put that in there. If that's triggering for you, I can take that out. And there was, I, I think part of that was just, she was really awesome. But the second part, I was just like, God damn, I'm so happy. I'm in a place where I could just, I know that I just gave something away. I know that I'm going to be thinking about it for the rest of my life if this is in there. And so it was just like, felt really good to be like, you know what? This isn't going to be part of the piece. And I don't know. It was just. Well. It was inter- It was very interesting. <laughs> well, that's that's great that you can identify that and, and say that. And I'm, I hear you 100% on that. I'm going to think about that for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have I have that bad bolt in my head too. It's uh. <laughs> yeah, you hang up and it's just like an overwhelming sense of dread, and you're like, wait, this doesn't have to be like this, or maybe it does, but it probably shouldn't be. This show is brought to you by Patreon, who ask creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms help people find your work, but getting you paid is another story. With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care the most, your fans. Since Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers, you'll skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a recurring membership to your fans. In turn, They'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken. So if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve. I want to ask you about something that's kind of in a different direction. And again, if I ask anything about the book and you don't want to discuss it, I totally understand. But there was something that really stuck with me um, since COVID and touring not really being an option for the foreseeable future. I've been going through the training process of doing emergency foster care, which is where when the children need to be taken out of their homes, they would come to my house for a night or two before they find an actual foster. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is trauma training and stuff. And a lot of the information I had heard, I kind of knew about, you know, like how things can impact you as a child when you're an adult. But so much of the process, I was just then realizing things that I told myself when I was little. I was just realizing now that I still do that. And 
how it still affects me. And I just never had realized that. And there was this line you said that you, you said he hammered it into us that everybody is lying to you all the time. Everybody is trying to steal from you all the time. It just made me think of that whole process. And I was just wonder if you are still realizing stuff to this day, how that kind of affected you throughout your life or how it affects you now as a person, or if that's something you have kind of been able to deal with and overcome or just how you feel about that sort of um, mistrust in general? Um, I do not think I have overcome it. The good news is when I recognize it, I can name it, I can identify it as it's happening and I can put a stop to it. But I think mm-hmm. it's, I think the Pavlovian part of it, you know, when somebody rings a bell and it has a meaning, you know, as soon as the bell gets rung, it still has that meaning. But instead of letting the bell resonate forever, it's like I can put my hand on it and go, stop the bell. It's okay. It's, that's like yeah. some crazy talk from when you were four years old that you kept hearing every day, let go of that. But it, yeah, I mean, those, yeah. those things are hard to shake. Yeah, and I think that, like what you were just saying, identifying it is one of the biggest things that you can do to kind of learn how to maintain it. But it's just hearing that at such a young age, and then you grow up with it, and you just don't even really realize um, that that kind of sits with you. And I just wondered, it made me think a lot about it. I think all of, you know, just so much, you know, our families of origin and just the idiosyncrasies of family and the dynamics of family. You know, I mean, I wrote the book and published it in 2011. And then my dad's health took a turn and he passed in September of 2012. And, you know, writing Mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff, I had to be really careful and, And it's funny because all of those kinds of things, like don't trust anybody, doctors or quacks, you'll never be sick, never go to the doctor, there's nothing wrong with you, et cetera, et cetera. And then it, it was just how it all sort of came back at the end of both of my parents' lives, you know, not only those kinds of statements and that mistrust as, as you watch their health fail and eventually the, the, the end of the decline and also how all of the family of origin idiosyncrasies reappear 10 times louder with kids in the family. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've had that, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, you know, if you want to get into that, but I'll, I'll just say, boy, it, all that, all, all those choruses you learn as a kid, they come back, they come back really loud at the end of the, you know, when there's family fractures and ends. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> so where are you located now? Um, I am back in San Francisco. Um, I moved from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco at the end of 2009. And then my partner and I started going to Berlin, Germany in early 2016. And we just, I, I always loved it. He had never been. We fell in love with it and we ended up getting, uh, finding a small apartment there. And we started spending most of the last four years in Berlin. And uh, we knew that we would have to come back 
to the States sometime before the end of 2020, just for, you know, like visa and, you know, family reasons, all that kind of stuff. But then coronavirus happened and we were in San Francisco and it was like, uh oh, this, we may not be able to go back. Yeah. Do you have a setup in San Francisco to record and write that you've been able to use throughout this time? Yeah, I've got a I've got a workroom at at my house and it's just been, you know, it's 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 always been my sanctuary since day 1. One of the things that I enjoy about being back in San Francisco, you know, in in Berlin I was in this little closet of a room and it was in a house with like 30 apartments and I didn't want to disturb any of the neighbors, so I had to work super quiet all the time. Mm-hmm. So, God, yeah, I can't imagine that. Yeah. Just acoustically um, well, I would do, th- you know, like direct, you know, just headphones and just do, you know, guitars through distortion boxes or a little tiny amp at two in the afternoon with a mic up real close on it and mm-hmm. having to go into the closet in the bedroom to sing, you know, and stuff. It'd be like, uh Yeah. But you're still like kind of holding your breath because you can't fully scream. So you don't really know how the song's going to turn out. Yep. 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 So I was doing less demos, especially for this record, which I think was a benefit in the end. I mean, do you record at home and do you demo a lot of stuff? And how do you feel about demos versus making real records and, you know, demo regret and all that kind of stuff? So the process was a lot different for this one. I fully just got Pro Tools interface up and running. And what I would do is write something and then I would have Wes who plays drums come over and we would like figure out his drum part and just kind of be there for hours. I'd be like, try this or this or drop out here or switch to the hat here. And then when I got his drums down, I would just build everything off of it. I'd retract my rhythm guitar. I'd track lead guitar, do all my vocals, any auxiliary stuff. Some of the songs I wrote with bass. So I would do bass instead of my guitars for those demos and then layer the guitars over it. But I pretty much did all of the demos fully before I went and recorded Mm -hmm. them. And I think that's just because I've always viewed studio time as, you know, like it's expensive and I never want to be figuring stuff out while I'm there. Even though naturally that happens, there's lyrics I'm jumping back and forth with or like parts that just don't work when you can really hear it. But I think since being able to just do things in the computer and on my own time and and not on any deadline and not really having to rely on anybody else to complete the song, it really gave me the space to fully form them before I went in. Mm -hmm. And that was awesome. I loved it. I think I can very much in the studio get into a rabbit hole and get in my head. And so having very detailed demos helps me avoid that and kind of takes away any of that paranoia before I even get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of my relationship with demos. (laughs) Yeah. I, this is the first time in a long time that I've gotten away from demos in the sense that I used to basically make records before we made the record. I mean, really dialing in you know, sounds and parts and and then listening to it and listening to it and listening to it and then getting together with my band and immediately the rhythm section comes to life and it's incredible. But then I'm like, but this just doesn't sound like the way I've listened to it for two months. 
<laughs> get that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I get that demo regret where I'm like, I never should have done this at mm-hmm. home. It was it was perfect, and now I have to make it better. And it's ah. <laughs> so this time I I'm not singing anything until I get in there. I'm not going to add a bunch of bells and whistles. I'm not going to you know add all kinds of colors to it. I'm just going to lay out a bare bone structure and you know send it to the guys and say say here let's just let's do this all on the floor and and we got the best results of of all five records that we've made together it was it was great so you figured out all your vocal stuff in the studio yep like your vocal delivery and everything yep you just had your lyrics yep Wow, that is wild to think about. That is awesome. I mean, it turned out great. It worked yeah. out very well for you. The record is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. And and there, I don't think I did more than eight top to bottom takes of anything. Wow, I love that. That's awesome. And I have this thing where like take five, take six is sort of my hot area. Like the first one's like, who mm-hmm. who am I? And then second one is like, uh-oh, I put too many diphthongs next to the sibilance and I'm tripping myself up and I got to change a word here or there. And then three is good and four, I'm then I become the character and I have my words sorted out. And then usually five or six, I'm just like, sing for your life. Sing it like, yeah. it's, sing it like it's over. <laughs> well, it's weird. There's like a sweet spot when you're screaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, singing is in the studio is so wild because... Even like, you know, using tape where you tend to sing things, you know, top to bottom and you don't jump in and cut in. You just sort of do it and then you're done. And then there's that 25 seconds where the tape is rewinding. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's this for you, but that would that used to be my moment where I could sit in my own head a little bit. And I'd hear the song going by backwards in the headphones at a high speed and just thinking, what what am I going to do next time? What's going to make it better? But now with the computer, yeah. I just, I do them rapid fire. It's like, as soon as the song is over, I'm like ready. And then we just, you know, pull up another track, so to speak, on the machine. And then I'm ready to go with no break. For me, it just, it, it created this weird urgency and just breathlessness at times where I was so exhausted while I was singing. And those are the ones that usually, those are the ones that I love. I'm just like completely out of breath. I'm completely out of my mind. I'm like, "Uh (laughs) oh. Yeah, those are always the best. Yeah. We had Zach Dawes. He's a bass player. He lives in LA and he flew in and did bass for a bunch of the songs. And I had never experienced having someone come in and then just like working out their parts two days before we were tracking or even some of it when we were tracking. And I will say that it was one of the best things that I had ever done as far as having that one thing being the not detailed thing, because it just didn't allow me to overthink things the way that I normally would when they're planned out ahead of time. And I already have expectations. And That was definitely a cool takeaway that I really appreciated in the end that I was super hesitant to do at the beginning. So kind of the thought of doing that with everybody is, I could see how that would end up really cool. You know, I'm so grateful to have made five records now with John Worcester and Jason Narducci. And the the secrets, you know, for us is, you know, John is such an amazing drummer. I mean, he's such a presence behind the kit, but he always plays 
to the song. He plays to the story and he plays to the words. Yeah. When things push and pull and he's just so in tune with, you know, cadence and phrasing of the story. And and Jason, the same with his bass playing. He knows, like, it's almost like stay close to the chord, but if you see a space, go for it. Mm-hmm. If you hear me do something really magical, just lay out a little bit. And we've developed this way now where it's 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 gotten almost, you know, it's, it's so unconscious for the three of us. I I don't know if you find when you yeah. when you bring in a, a new bassist does he serve the song does he serve the bass drum like how you know how you put it how we construct all this stuff I know we're getting inside baseball for a lot of people but yeah I think like the best part about him was that he was just there to fully support the vision so there was never any tension or any backlash he just wanted to try and figure out what I was hearing in my head and figure out a way to put that down and just deal with my bullshit along the way, pretty much. It was really awesome working with him, but I know exactly what you're talking about with the drum stuff. When I started the band, I started with Stuart Copeland, who was the drummer, but not the Stuart Copeland. But we started just the two of us. (laughs) I would write something and then we would just sit and, and play it and he would play drums to it. And he would just sit with my vocals and my guitar stuff. And I would just see him thinking over and over again, like, no, this isn't cool, or no, this needs to play into the lyrics, or this just isn't there. And just being able to watch him, like, write to the song instead of just playing to it was so cool. I think about it all the time. I still think about it to this day because it's just, it's it's a very special thing. I think anyone can kind of hop on and play to a song, but to really figure out what's going on and and write with it. And it's great. Like those sometimes those little things are what totally takes a song off. Like little stops or little breaks or something or like all of a sudden the snare's going to hit twice with like the vocal accentuations. It's just like those little things are sometimes what are the best parts that people love about songs the most that they're just don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they have no idea as it's going by. But if you're a writer or a player and you're just like, yeah, it's just that little pop pop that you didn't see coming or just some kind of, you know, mm-hmm. s- slushing out the hi-hat and then just snapping it closed real quick when you don't expect it. And just the fun little things, sort of the psychological bits that help the story unfold for, for listeners. Yeah, that's that's great that you were able to, you know, have that experience early with a with a drummer because they can they can be tough. <laughs> yeah, and one cool thing about it is that then you can develop an ear for it as a musician. You can kind of be like, oh, this, you know, this is what happened in this song that I loved, or just seeing it happen. It's like you can then hear that in other people's songs, or you can just tell the difference, or you can really see what needs to happen or, or what is lacking when you've had the privilege to play with musicians like that. It just really helps you as a songwriter as well. And mm. that's. Wow, that's just really cool that you have that with Jason and Wears shirt. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. My big frustration right now is not being able to go out and play music for people. And especially oh my the, God. these songs. These were built for the stage. <laughs> like, oh. oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a quarter stick of dynamite. That record is just, it doesn't stop. It's awesome. It's so good. Your record really cooks along too. I mean, there's a, a lot coming at you. <laughs> it's Yeah, <laughs> thank you. That's funny you bring that up though, because I was just thinking about it today. I feel like the past few weeks have really, the not touring thing has just been like 
itching at my skin recently. It's such an outlet that you get used to having. And then when that's taken away from you, I feel like when COVID started, it was kind of like, oh, whatever, I don't really go out much anyway. This is fine, blah, 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 right? I'll, I'll work on the record and then it's done. And you're just like, oh my God, I just need to play. I need that release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was, and I was taking... It was probably four to five new songs every night right before we recorded. And it was funny because I haven't written politically for so long and doing these solo electric shows with new political songs. And, you know, in the middle of the show, you know, I come out, bang, 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 yay, yay, yay. Here's a bunch of hits, yay, yay, yay. Here's the most recent record stuff, yay, yay, yay. Now we're in the middle of the show and I want to play these new songs and I talk to people about my life and about politics a couple minutes and then play these really hot political songs. And, and it was just so great to work everything out before the studio. And then, you know, going out at the end of the night after I pack up and dry off and, you know, get some, get some chewing gum, get rid of my stage breath and then go out and say hi to people. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. And they were just so, encouraging about the stories and those hot political songs. They're like, go, 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 do that, do that. Yeah. So to have all that support and validation and you, you're doing it, go do it. And then to do it and now I can't do it. I'm like, oh. Yeah. It's just a record that was so built out of being on stage and, and, and that community, you know, telling the story and then having the community say that's a good story and now, now I can't do that for a while. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Something that I had realized too, I'm nine months without drinking now. And when I quit, I, I don't really go out to bars, COVID or not. Now that I'm sober, it's just not something that I can do very easily. And I'm like, what feels like it's still missing, even though I'm normally at home. And then I realized that connection that you get just talking to people every night or playing with them and seeing them connect is almost like a bunch of friendships in itself that you're just like, oh, I don't have that now. That was my way of socializing and communicating with people. And with that being taken away from you, it's really just like sitting there with yourself. And I guess I didn't realize how much of a void that even just that after show talk that I had with people at the merch table really filled until it started sinking in that I wasn't going to play for a long time. Yeah. When I'm not at work and I guess work for me is either making a record or being on stage or being on tour. Other than that, I am a hermit. I mean, I, I have friends, but I'm not a big social guy because my work is all about being the life of the party, I guess, for lack of a better term right now. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, this is this is no party. <laughs> I feel like thinking about the validation that shows brings me kind of um, amplifies my unhealthy relationship with the music that I write because I have no separation between myself and bully. It's like bully is me in my head. And I just wonder how you what your relationship is to the music that you play. And if you ever think about that and and what you would do if you didn't have it anymore, which I know that you took a break to write wrestling. That's where I stopped in the book. Um, But 
as far as someone who just like never stopped, I mean, you're still going. It makes me wonder if you also have that same identification to your music or if you're able to separate it. I, the four words that I always keep in my mind is write what you know. You know, it's what I know. It's the life that I have had so far. It's the people that I've spent my life with. You know, I mean, when I was a little kid, it was the way that I was able to drown out all the noise, you know, in a, in a difficult childhood. And, and I dread to think of what life would be like without it. And, and I think, yeah, I think there's people who make music because they have a gift or a talent for melody or they have, a, you know, a beautiful voice or they, you know, know how to spin a phrase or they know how to carry themselves on a stage. And I don't know how to do any of those particularly well when I look at right. other when I look at other people. It's like I got like a limited skill set and these stories and I throw myself completely into it and that is my life. And yeah, I, I just don't, I, I dread to think about not having it. Yeah. Because uh, I, I have an amazing partner and I have my work and that's really about it. <laughs> so that's where, yeah. that's where I am with my work. <laughs> well, and I think you can kind of tell too who you know, when people are playing because they need to, or maybe not. But I definitely remember when we played with you guys at that outdoor show in Minneapolis, I saw you guys play for the first time. And I was blown away, A, because seeing a, seeing a really good three-piece is really rare. It's like the best thing in the world because there's no room for bullshit. So everybody just has to be really good at what they're doing. So that's already one thing that I always take note on. But your energy was just... I remember texting my manager, who's a big Bob Mould fan as well. <laughs> I was just like, holy shit, like, this is insane. I hope this is how I continue to be as a musician because it was, it was mind-blowing. I, I mean, just really the energy that all of you guys had, too. I mean, I don't know. It was, it was really something to see. So I feel like when you talk about you kind of playing and not having that presence you have something of your own (laughs) and you can definitely sense it when you play because it's Uh, it's a pretty incredible thing to watch gosh thank you yeah when the three of us set to the music it's it's pretty crazy and we've just we've gotten so good at non-verbal communication and just little hand cues or just shooting a look or moving a foot up in the Mm -hmm. air in a certain way it's just like we all know what it means you know we have those little it's almost like a pitcher catcher kind of thing where we have these little signals that we can do and nobody else sees them and when you get that refined it just you become this machine you know that just never lets up and yeah me personally I, I can't stand watching myself I don't I don't know if you have that like oh god yeah or hearing myself yep Oh, my gosh. Live. (laughs) It's like when someone wants me to put out a live record, I'm like, okay, well, you might as well just bury my grave because, like, this is not (laughs) – I cannot get through this. I just just pick everything apart. And even, like, watching myself, especially when we first started playing, it was just like if I saw something on the Internet, it would make me not want to play because I'd pick myself apart so much. So I – Totally relate to that, uh, to say the yeah, least. I do. Where does that come from? Because I'm sure people, I'm guessing people just think like, oh, they probably just watch their videos and think, oh, I look really good. And I'm just like, 
horrified at at the way, oh like my movements or my ticks, and I'm just ah. <laughs> it's so it's so triggering. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> you talking about it now. I'm like I'm getting a shortness of breath just thinking about it. Like, and we just uh, keep, and we just keep doing it forever. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's just. It's bizarre. I think it's because when you're playing, you just feel like your most authentic self. And you're like, this feels so good. This is like exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. And then you see it live and you're just like, what the fuck? I look like that? Like, I'm so off pitch. Or like a lot of times, too, there will be like a lot of bully pictures, but it's just like me screaming. And so it's like, of course I don't want to see that. Like, that is (laughs) not... It's just not a flattering picture. (laughs) It's not easy to look at. It's a wild thing that we do. And I mean, I I love doing it and I love that people enjoy it and stuff. But man, I I don't like watching it. (laughs) No, but I love doing it. Yes. Yeah. For sure. (laughs) Uh, Well, this has been so great. Congratulations on the new record. Thanks for sharing all the experiences and wonderful words about stuff. Hopefully we can do some shows together sometime if we ever get to get back on our platforms up there. Yes, I really appreciate you letting me pick your brain. And um, I love the record. I'm super excited for you guys. Uh, Stay safe. Wear your mask. (laughs) Yes, and you as well. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Alicia Bagnano, Bob Mould, thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, definitely check out Bob's bandmates who have each been on the show. Jason Narducci spoke with Michael Shannon earlier this year. And a few years back, John Worcester interviewed Lil Bub, R.I.P. R.I.P. Bub. If you're interested in Bob Mould and you haven't read his autobiography, co-written by former TalkHouse music editor Michael Azarad, you definitely should. It's incredible. And I will add to that, Azarad's incomparable Our Band Could Be Your Life. It's a must read if you're interested in the birth of American indie rock and Bob's early days. Yes, put the podcast down now and go find that book if you haven't <laughs> read it. You can catch TalkHouse on all socials at TalkHouse. And it's always a good idea to keep an eye on our events tab at TalkHouse.com. Everyone you hear today recorded themselves. And our producer was, of course, the incomparable Mark Yoshizumi. Our researcher for this week's show was Reese Higgins. And as always, the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. And I'm Josh Modell. Peace. And punk rock. Punk rock.